Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Merry Christmas this week to our readers around the world. My essay this week is really not based upon the readings for December 27, 2015, but in fact is my annual essay, Best Books of 2015. For Sunday, December 27, 2015. Do you need a last-minute gift idea? Want a good read for the holidays? Journey with Jesus reviews 52 books a year, one every single week. Of course, there's no accounting for personal taste, but here are my best books of 2015 in alphabetical order. First, Douglas Bullen, B-O-I-N. The title, Coming Out Christian, How the Followers of Jesus Made a Place in Caesar's Empire. New York Bloomsbury Press, 2015, 206 pages. When Christianity was legalized in the year 313, Christian believers comprised about 5 to 10% of the Roman Empire's population of some 60 million people. A hundred years earlier, one scholar estimates, they accounted for only 3% of the population. How did this minority movement accomplish that? Edward Gibbons said their success was based on their so-called intolerant zeal of Roman ways. That is, the new faith was incompatible with and obstinately different from the old ways of the ancient empire. This trope was an undeserved stigma, says Bowen. Others suggest that it was the inherent appeal of the Christian message in a spiritually bankrupt empire. Bowen, a classicist, historian, and archaeologist at St. Louis University, rejects this black-and-white binary way of thinking and offers instead a more nuanced interpretation. In his view, there were many different ways to be both Roman and Christian. He argues that the early believers lived hyphenated lives and juggled their identities in highly creative ways. They lived in a middle ground characterized by many shades of gray. For the most part, early believers were just ignored, even entirely invisible when judged by their archaeological remains. New scholarship suggests that they weren't as persecuted as some standard histories suggest either. In addition to confessing their faith, believers served in the military, went to the games, enjoyed the festivals, and attended the theaters, just like their neighbors. For them, Rome was not the horror of Babylon, but a fascinating place to live. In short, they did their best to fit in with shared civic values, which, in fact, is just what we read in the epistles. For example, wives were to obey their husbands, slaves their masters, and believers were to so-called so honor the emperor. 
Bowen discerns a pattern not of hostility and withdrawal, not a zero-sum game, but one of engagement and dialogue. Christian success was not dependent on someone else's conversion. It was dependent on conversation. By the late 4th century, though, this civic tolerance by Christians had eroded into violent cultural clashes, the burning of a synagogue, the destruction of a pagan temple, and government legislation that punished non-believers. Sadly, we've been living with the consequences ever since. Once again, the title of the book, Coming Out Christian, How the Followers of Jesus Made a Place in Caesar's Empire. Number two, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, New York, Spiegel and Growl, 2015, 152 pages. Toni Morrison called Ta-Nehisi Coates' new book Required Reading. That's usually just a dust jacket blurb by the marketing department, but this time it might be true. In her own review for the New York Times, Michelle Alexander, author of the book New Jim Crow, says she read the book twice. And in November, Coates' book won the 2015 National Book Award in nonfiction. And just two months after its release, last summer in July, Coates, born in 1975, won a MacArthur Genius Grant. Coates' book is a 152-page letter to his 15-year-old son, Samori, that's rooted in a harsh critique of race history in America, past and present. How do I live free in this black body, he asks, given that progress in America remains predicated upon systematic violence against blacks? Race isn't a biological or ethnic category for Coates. It's a carefully crafted social construction built from the likes of slavery, segregation, Jim Crow laws, mass incarceration, redlining, and numerous federal policies. The violence is exacerbated by the American myths of exceptionalism and innocence. There's also the power of a comforting national narrative that Coates calls The Dream, capital D, which is, in fact, our collective delusion. There's nothing or broken or aberrant here, nor should we be surprised, for the system is working just like the dreamers have planned. There's no consolation here. Coates does not tell his son that things will get better. There's little encouragement to be had from genuine progress, like electing a black president twice. He feels trapped in his own carefully constructed and alternative weaponized history and tied to old ways. It's naive to hope that the dreamers will change. Coates has no religious faith or political hope that justice will be served. He's full of fears and even a sense of powerlessness. He writes, we cannot will ourselves to an escape on our own. There is no velocity of escape. And so, in the end, 
He offers no answers, just many complicated questions. Number three, Atu Gawande. The title, Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters the Most in the End. New York Metropolitan Books, 2014. 282 pages. Atu Gwande is a general surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, a professor at Harvard Medical School, and the author of three best-selling books. The first one, Complications, A Surgeon's Notes on an Imperfect Science, 2003. In 2008, Better, A Surgeon's Notes on Performance. And then in 2009, Checklist Manifesto. In her own review, Marcia Angel, former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, calls this newest book, Being Mortal, Gawande's best book yet. Gawande says that instead of acknowledging the natural order of things, we've been seduced by the prevailing fantasy that we are ageless. Instead of acknowledging the limits of medical treatments, we have turned mortality into an almost purely medical experience, which in turn has led to denial, dishonesty, arrogance, and, for the elderly and dying, horrible social isolation. Whereas the vast majority of people used to die at home among a multi-generational family, by the 1980s, only 17% did. This reduction of mortality to medicine, says Guande, has done tremendous harm instead of healing. There are positive alternatives to spending all your money in your last days drugged out of your mind, hooked up to multiple machines, and isolated in the ICU. Gawande explains the history of nursing homes, hospice care, assisted living, and even other creative alternatives. There are people in the world, he writes, who change imaginations. Acknowledging your mortality is a tremendous gift. It reorders your desires. It narrows your focus and gives you a new perspective that's rooted in reality instead of futile medical fantasies. Medical interventions are only justified, says Gawande, if they serve the larger aim of a person's life. When we forget that, the suffering we can inflict can be what he calls barbaric. But when we remember it, the good we can do can be breathtaking. Atul Gawande, being mortal, medicine, and what matters in the end. My fourth best book of 2015. The author is Grant Wacker. The title, America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. Cambridge, Harvard University Press, 2014, 413 pages. By the time that Billy Graham, born in 1918, Retired from public ministry in 2005, he had shaped the religious landscape of modern America more than any person, perhaps, except Martin Luther King, Jr. 
After graduation from Wheaton College in 1943, then his 1949 crusade in Los Angeles, by the 1950s he was already a national personality. Wacker's book is really not a conventional biography. He explores larger questions, like how and why Graham matters, how he shaped evangelical religion, and how evangelical religion related to American culture. He looks at Graham through eight interpretive lenses. Billy Graham as preacher, icon, southerner, entrepreneur, architect, pilgrim, pastor, and patriarch. Wacker admits that he's sympathetic to his subject. He almost always gives Graham the benefit of the doubt, but he's by no means uncritical. In fact, I would say there's no meaningful criticism of Graham that he does not raise. He made serious mistakes, says Wacker, most notably his odious remarks about Jews that were released on the Nixon tapes in 2002. His preaching could be powerful, but also what Wacker calls soporific. He was a person of genuine humility who also mastered the art of self-promotion. He called himself a country preacher while befriending 11 successive presidents and some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world. He projected the image of a family man, but was an absentee father who traveled eight months a year. He built the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association into a massive empire and then made his son, Franklin, the president and CEO. These and other contradictions have generated many polarized interpretations, and yet Billy Graham is routinely listed as one of the most admired people in the world. Wacker argues that he was a man of uncompromised integrity and manifest sincerity. Graham changed his views on various issues across the decades. He expressed his regrets. He admitted his mistakes. He never pretended to be a scholar or an intellectual. He was, for his generation, as the title of the book says, America's pastor. And finally, my fifth and last favorite book for 2015 is a book of poetry. The author Christian Wyman. It's called Once in the West, Poems. New York, Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud, 2014, 105 pages. Christian Wyman's new book of poetry, his fourth, follows his memoir called My Bright Abyss, Meditation of a Modern Believer, from 2013. In that previous book, A Mosaic of Prose Fragments, he explored his experience of falling in love in the shadow of death while trying to discover what assenting to his long, latent faith meant. What I crave, he wrote in that earlier book, is some speech that is true to the transcendent nature of grace, yet equal to the hard reality in which daily faith operates. He sought both an active devotion 
an honest modern consciousness. He wanted to see the sanity and vitality of this strange ancient thing called Christian faith. Wyman, born in 1966, is an American poet, the author of seven books, and from 2003 to 2013 was the editor of the journal Poetry, which was the oldest poetry magazine in the United States. On his 39th birthday, he was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. His many treatments included a bone marrow transplant. At about that same time, Wyman fell madly in love and married his wife, Danielle. Today, they have two children. Percolating underneath all of this was a long, latent faith from his childhood days in West Texas. Today, Wyman teaches at the Yale Divinity School and Yale Institute of Sacred Music. The 51 poems in this newest book continue Wyman's search for a god who was both too near and too far. Many of them reflect on his Texas childhood and the people who knew me when. Others describe his conversion and his cancer. All of them are characterized by brutal emotional honesty. On the one hand, we can experience terrifying pain, suffering, loneliness, and the primal silence. The pious platitudes of a Sunday school faith are no help here, and Wyman can be downright acerbic when he describes our casual presumptions about the divine. But this is not the only thing we experience. We know moments of meaning, a trace of peace, love in forsaken places like nursing homes, the rocked shriek of joy, and even what he calls in one poem, an attack of happiness. Is nothing pure, he asks? No, it's not. There are both eros and thanatos, meaning and meanness, love and hate, destruction and creation. Winter cold might have a blind imperative to destroy, but when Wyman looks more closely, he sees its bare abundance and realizes that one might more would have been too much. And such is the surplus of meaning amidst the apparent meaninglessness. Christian Wyman, a book of poetry once in the West. Five favorite books from 2015. And for our book review this week, we have a guest review. The title of the book, On the Move, A Life. It's a memoir by Oliver Sacks, New York, Knopf, 2015. 416 pages long. This is a guest book review by physicist Brad Keister. Brad and his wife Katie worship at Washington Community Fellowship on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. On the Move is the memoir of Oliver Sacks, 
published just a few months before his death this year from cancer at the age of 82. Sachs, a neurologist, is known for his writings of case studies of his patients, including the book Awakenings, which was adapted as a film in 1990 with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, and then a book previously reviewed at Journey with Jesus, Music Ophelia, Tales of Music in the Brain. Sachs wrote this current memoir in a similar vein, illustrating his perspectives by means of people he met along his lifelong journey. Born in England, Sachs received his medical degree at Oxford and then moved to the United States, where he held positions in Los Angeles and San Francisco before moving to New York, where he spent most of his professional life. His journey was punctuated by interludes that we don't normally associate with that of a high-functioning professional, including, for example, a summer at a kibbutz in Israel, a stay in Venice Beach, California, where he set a weightlifting record, and a cross-country trip on one of his beloved motorcycles. True to the memoir's title, Sachs considered himself as on the move, even when he was physically in one place. Sachs emerges from this memoir as very much a loner. Many of his published works were not accepted or appreciated at the time, and several were published only because of the advocacy of a few individuals who clearly saw their great merit. He also did not always fit in to his professional environment. In one instance, while on the staff of Beth Abraham Hospital in New York, Sachs was asked to vacate an apartment that was reserved for him as the on-call physician. When he questioned the request, the hospital director removed him from the apartment and even terminated his appointment. Sachs also writes of the effect of his extreme shyness on his relationship with others. In that vein, he describes living with his homosexuality, having addressed it in full less than 10 years before his death. In his work, in his writing, Sachs went beyond a view of the mind that had only two states, functioning or failing, to the different perspective that our varied neurological makeups speak to the very core of who we are. In so doing, Oliver Sachs challenged our notions of what constitutes normal or right about others and about ourselves. Oliver Sacks, a memoir right before he died. It's called On the Move. For movies this week, we go to the beleaguered country of Syria. The title of the movie, Return to Homs, 2014. Since the peaceful Arab Spring that began in 2011, Syria has become what the former Secretary of State Warren Christopher called, in reference to Bosnia, a problem from hell. More than 200,000 people have died. Over half of the population of 22 million people have fled the country or been internally and forcibly 
displaced. President Bashar al-Assad has bombed his own country into oblivion, and he now controls only about one-sixth of its territory. A dozen countries now fight a proxy war there, along with twice that many insurgent militias. This PBS documentary film aired in July of 2015. Before then, it won the 2014 Sundance World Cinema Prize for Best Documentary. It focuses on the transformation of Bassett Sarut from a national star soccer player to a nonviolent leader of the Arab Spring to an armed insurgent leader. Peaceful resistance is futile, he says. We're dealing with people who don't fear God. The movie was filmed from August 2011 to April 2013, so further complexities of the Civil War have dated its narrative. Nonetheless, if you can bear to watch the carnage at such close range, it puts a very human face on the apocalypse that is now Syria. Sarut asks a question, O oh world, what are you waiting for? I watched this film for free on the PBS website. Once again, the title of the film, Return to Homs. And finally, for poetry this week, a favorite Advent Christmas poem by U.A. Fanthorpe, the British poet. The title of the poem, B.C. A.D. This was the moment when before turned into after, and the future's uninvented timekeepers presented arms. This was the moment when nothing happened. Only dull peace sprawled boringly over the earth. This was the moment when even energetic Romans could find nothing better to do than counting heads in remote provinces. And this was the moment when a few farm workers and three members of an obscure Persian sect walked haphazard by starlight straight into the kingdom of God. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 27th, 2015. And a Merry Christmas week once again. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.